from Relay FM. This is Upgrade, episode 334, and today's show is brought to you by ExpressVPN, Bombus, and HelloFresh. My name is Mike Hurley, and I'm joined by Jason Snell. Hello, Jason Snell. Hello, Mike Hurley. I have a hashtag Snell Talk question that requires context. The question okay. comes from Stephen, and it mm-hmm. is What is, quote, Letterama? L E T T E R A M A. The context yeah. is, I was streaming uh, last Friday, and Jason uh, appeared in the Twitch chat uh, whilst I was streaming, and his username was Letterama. And Jason tried to explain this to me in the Twitch chat, and I didn't understand it. So, Jason, what is uh, you, your Twitch username is Letterama? Why yes. is that, and where does it come from? Letterama is a fallback username that I use when I can't get the normal usernames that I, I want mm-hmm. for a service because nobody ever takes it. And the reason that it exists is because when I was in high school, my friends and I made movies. We made videos. And uh, you made uh, like a Bond movie once, right? We made so many. We made yeah. Bond movies. We made a we made a, a kung fu movie. We made a, a noir detective show. We made a, a spy series. We did a dumb superhero thing. You name it, we made it. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that era, that was the, the era where I had, uh, I had an Apple II, and we wanted to do like credits for our movies, like titles and credits and things like that. And in that era, there was no way to do that essentially without like expensive hardware. So, uh, what I could do was attach my VCR to my Apple II and use a program called Fontrix, I want to say, which allowed you to load fonts basically and generate a screen on um on the apple II, and then you could save those out as as uh as files as like image files um and then you could run through like a little a little script or do it manually uh with the vcr running and you could get like a credit it wasn't credit rolling because you couldn't make them roll but you could get them to sort of like go from one credit to the next credit to the next credit and i ended up doing that for every single person in my high school video production class which we had and all my friends and like everybody i was the guy for a while you did until the very end where i sort of stopped doing it and then another guy who was younger than me who was still there after i went to college he kind of picked it up for me so we did all of that and I decided I I was amused by the idea that the title, as is true with regular like productions, that people who do the titles get a credit. And so I invented Letterama as the company that makes credits because <laughs> it's just a bunch of letters, right? So yeah. Letterama, it seemed like a seemed like this would be the name of it. It was just a joke, essentially. But I kept at it, and then by the end, um, we kept joking about the Letterama credit, and I created. Uh, I eventually created a titles by Letterama credit that was the entire screen, and like the letters were in different colors, and literally it was the um, Letterama egomaniac credit screen because mm-hmm. again I thought it was just funny. It, it was all jokes within jokes within jokes. Anyway, so I had that name, and uh, it it does not exist. I mean, there is a company called Letterama that prints signs or something somewhere on the internet, but basically. It doesn't exist in social media logins or other account logins. So if I can't get my go-to ones that involve my name, I will just give up and do Letterama because it's always available. That's the story. So Apple II credits. Yeah, I need to get a, a, a little bit of clarification because there's something okay. I don't understand, which is, so how did you get 
the files you created on the Apple II onto the tape. So the uh, Apple II had a composite video out port. Right. So you plug an RCA cable, composite video out cable, into the uh, into the Apple II, and you plug the it into video in on the VCR, and then you press right. record. And instead of recording right. um, the you know what's on the TV, it's recording from the video input. Okay, and it's recording essentially it's a screen recording of whatever is on the Apple II at that moment, and then you go into graphics mode on the Apple II, which makes the text completely disappear, and all there are, are graphics, and you can still type on the Apple II in graphics mode. So you can type in the background, load this file, and display it, and that and it goes and it sort of fades in, kind of. It's not; it's like interlaced lines, but it it appears. And so I, that's what I would do is I would have a stack of those on a floppy disk and I'd start recording and I'd, and I'd run through the individual things. And then that tape would go and be used in the, uh, in the editor. If you had, we had an editor at the high school. So that, that was back in those days, editing videotape was literally like, um, two VCRs attached to each other and, you know, you'd play on one and record on the other. And that's how you'd go from your source to your final. Yeah. It was very, um, oldest of schools. Uh, but before that, we were just literally bringing two, like my friend would bring their VCR over to my house and we'd have, stick our two VCRs together. And that's how we would edit our movies together was just playing one VCR and recording on the other. Um, so suffice it to say that I, I enjoy iMovie and Final Cut to this day because I remember what it was like before we had nonlinear editors. Yeah, because I, I figured you, well, I knew that you could like connect VCRs together and like cassettes like i used to do with uh with like audio cassettes i used to connect two things together to be able to transfer music from one to another i just had no idea that you could do this with the apple II. yeah yeah it had it that was the standard way you connected if you wanted like higher quality image you could get like uh, i had a video card basically that attached to the pins on the on the motherboard and 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 i had a color monitor but the 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 stock kind of composite output was color but most but it was so low quality that you really for text you really needed to just be on a, a monochrome monitor so most of those apple II monitors like the green monitors that you see those are just attached via an rca cable essentially coming out of the video out port on the back so that was the uh before there was a vga and things like that there was just a composite video output Port on those computers. If you would like to send in a question to help us begin an episode of Upgrade, you can send in a tweet with the hashtag SnowTalk. You could use question mark SnowTalk in the Relay FM members Discord. Or if you are Stephen Hackett, you can write it into our show document yourself, which is what Stephen did. And yeah. that's how I knew that this question existed. Yeah, somebody did send it in as a SnowTalk question after that oh, stream really? I noticed. That's, that, that's the more official way of doing it. Rather than attempting to hijack the show. It, it is, but this is the, like, you're just, yeah, you're just sneaking in there, and we, we see that. But somebody somebody did it. Somebody knows the right way to do it, and that was Listener Matt. So thank you, Listener Matt. I have uh, two very quick pieces of follow-up that are both upstream-related. Uh, we spoke about Roku potentially acquiring the rights to Quibi's content. They did it, and it cost them less than $100 million. Yes, so substantially less than $100 million, I think, <laughs> is what I saw. <laughs> what does that mean? $2? $8? Yeah, I don't really know. Like, are we? is it more than 50 Like, where is the lower end of substantially, and why does $100 million need to be in the conversation at all? Um, but nevertheless. Um, and also, Warner Brothers is going to be guaranteeing payments to filmmakers regardless of box office and will, quote, increase the odds of performance-based bonuses. 
So if you remember, there was a lot of furore about the fact that Warner Brothers basically pulled the rug out from their uh, filmmakers and, and actors and actresses cast and crew when they took their movies that were supposed to be in cinemas and put them on HBO Max without any warning to them. And there was a lot of upset about what was going to happen to all of the people expected to be paid and what box offices was provide them. So they're going to be doing a bunch of things. Bonuses for good performance in uh, the box office are going to be paid out now at one half of what the original trigger was. So you make this movie makes X millions, you'll get your bonus. It's now been cut in half and they're going to be uh, reducing it if movie theaters close down more. So they'll keep reducing the point. So like, I guess it's, I don't really know why they're doing it that way, but they are. And also, uh, so this is one of those funny things where like companies paying themselves money HBO Max yep. will pay Warner Brothers a fee for the 31-day exclusivity window, which is apparently, they're saying, going to be a lot of money, and that money will be shared out with cast and crew. So that's how they're going to make it happen. And we'll see if this is That'll all be in the various lawsuits. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we're going to see. We'll see how this is taken to uh, by people in the movie industry. Jason, last week, the Mac App Store uh, turned 10 years old. Um, wasn't a ton of coverage about this, which made me kind of want to uh, touch on this a little bit with you to kind of get your thoughts on 10 years of the Mac App Store. I mean, it's been a bit of a bumpy ride, to say the least, and ultimately maybe hasn't done what anybody would have really expected it to do. So I kind of wanted to get your feelings, like 10 years into the Mac App Store. What do you think about it? Um, I was very optimistic about it at the time because, right, we were, we were dealing with the wild success of the iOS app store, the iPhone app store from 2008 on. And so then we get to 2011 Mac app store. And the thought was like, is the app store existence of an easy to use, easy to find bundled with the operating system app store, the reason that the app store on the iPhone was so successful that brought the idea of paying for and downloading software um, out of the kind of nerd realm and into just a very easy mainstream understandable thing and had the iPhone trained people to think about, uh, getting apps using an app store. And so was this going to be a revolution for Mac software? That was, that was the thought. <laughs> and, you know, I, I would say that the trajectory of the Mac app store has not been as, as bad as the worst case scenario, but it's also not been the best case scenario. And I think that there's a bunch of reasons for that. Yeah, it's not the iMessage app store, for example. Right, exactly. Uh, you know, it is the Mac app store exists and there's stuff in it and people do buy stuff in the Mac app store. And I'm sure, you know, Apple probably could come up with some self-serving <laughs> stats about the success of the Mac app store and, and uh, put those out there. But what I would say is that first off, I think Apple shot itself in the foot. Apple decided that their policies apple thought this was going to be such a wild success that they decided that they could dictate policies to mac developers in the same way that they dictated policies to uh ios developers it, and there's so much difference right like first off ios developers only really came into existence in the context of an app store mac developers had been around forever 
for a- for ages they'd been writing Mac software and selling it themselves and they had their own business models they had their own they they could do whatever they wanted and they they got to do that whereas the Mac App Store came in and had all these rules that the iOS App Store had but the iOS App Store had them from the start as like mm-hmm. these are th- these are things you're not allowed to do right and we all have talked about many times how Apple has set up a lot of rules and we'll probably talk about them later in the show too a lot of rules for apps that are in the App Store yeah. you have to follow what Apple for Apple to sell your app essentially to resell your app um, you need to follow a lot of rules, and they. I think Apple really believed that there would be a gold rush. People, Mac developers, would be like, "Oh man, we're going to make money like Mac, like the regular App Store if we're in the Mac App Store." So they were going to say, "We're going to also set all these rules and and sandboxing and you know all these things that are very iOS like, and you're just going to you're going to do that." And that that was wrong on like a huge number of levels, right? Because it was wrong because. Um, they didn't. They didn't have that leverage. That never was a point where Mac developers were like, "Oh man, I'm really missing out by not being in the Mac App Store." It really never happened. It really never got the ball rolling to that point. And all of these apps for the Mac had been conceived of in an open software development ecosystem where you just made your app work and then you sold it and then people bought it. So a lot of the apps that were the best apps on the Mac couldn't be in the Mac App Store because Apple had set these incredibly uh, restrictive rules. And Mm -hmm. I would argue, I would argue that if Apple had made the Mac App Store something that was much, that was essentially just a front end for Mac software of any kind to be installed and updated, rather than it being a curated rule-based thing. And I know why they did that. They wanted it to be, you know, have Apple stamp and all of that. But but let's be honest, they also just were accustomed to the level of control that Apple had over the iOS app store. And if they had if they had done something that was a lot simpler and was basically like, no, if you've got an app that runs on the Mac, um, we'll, you know, you follow these basic rules and we'll sell it and you get the money and we take our piece. And I think it actually would have been way more successful. Yeah. But but they they nipped that in the bud and they basically said, no, you most apps are going to have to change and jump through some very difficult hoops that Mac apps had never needed to do before. And so there weren't that many apps. And therefore, it was never a place that it needed to be, you know, that everybody needed to be. And by the time Phil Schiller took over app developer stuff and app store stuff and made a bunch of changes, and you saw this a few years ago where they made that statement at at WWDC where they're like, BB Edit's going to come back in the store because BB Edit yeah. had tried to be in the store, and 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 Rich Siegel had announced that Bare Bones was was at a the Singleton conference actually, I think the last one that they were they were getting out of the store, and he gave a whole presentation about why the Mac App Store was just a failure for them because they couldn't they couldn't make it work, um, and and they made the so Apple makes this big deal. Oh, Bare Bones is going to come back in, and Panic is going to come in, and you know there Microsoft Office is in there, and look at all the things that are happening. Well. I think that was helpful, and I think in the last few years what we've seen from Apple is an actual attempt to make a whole bunch of new entitlements, as they call them, that basically allow an app developer to say, I need to do this in order to be in the Mac App Store. And for Apple to say, we're going to create a special flag that is uh, ability to do that thing. We're letting you in the side door here, basically. Yeah, well, and it's... Well, it's like we're gonna we're gonna make another rule here that is you can do this thing if we say it's okay, and then the developer says, "Is it okay?" And Apple says, "For you, yes. For you, no." Right? And and, and the, it's good because they're trying to evolve it and expand it 
and let apps and really look at like what apps can't get in the Mac App Store and why and can we get them in the Mac App Store? And so that's all that's all good. And I do buy apps on the Mac App Store. Some apps are only on the Mac App Store. But I think the Mac App Store has had a very difficult time ever really transcending the original sin of the Mac App Store, which is Apple kind of arrogantly brought the iOS App Store model to the Mac and expected the software to just shoehorn itself inside. But it wasn't exclusive. You could just not use the App Store. And that's why the iOS App Store was successful, is you couldn't not use the iOS App Store. And yeah. because the vast number of of uh, pieces of software that were out there for the Mac were written for an environment where they could do whatever they wanted and they didn't fit inside the rules. So, you know, that original sin, I think, has basically uh, made the Mac App Store what it is today, which is it's around and people use it. And it's got stuff on it, and you could be a Mac user and just use the Mac App Store and be fine, mm -hmm. right? But there is a huge amount of rich stuff that is outside of the Mac App Store that is not going to go in the Mac App Store. And that's, uh, you know, it, it never did that, like... I have not seen a an amazing get rich quick story, right? Where it's like, oh my God, you have to put your app in the Mac App Store because then you get featured by Apple and the ball starts rolling and your app is worth a fortune mm -hmm. and you make a lot of money and now you've got a business or whatever. Like those stories, I don't, I haven't seen any. And and if if there is one, it's the exception that proves the rule for the Mac App Store. So you know, I think it's unfortunate that it played out the way it did, but um. That's on Apple. It's Apple's fault. Mac, Mac App Store is what it is because of the decisions Apple has made over the last decade. Yeah, like one of the ones that always sticks out to me was the sandboxing requirements, right? Where it was like they introduced the store. It was already not a great deal, but some people went for it. And then they were like, oh, yeah, starting from now, there's a bunch of stuff you can't do anymore. <laughs> it's like, what? Yeah, like read that, read that part of the drive. And they've again, they've got like full disk access and stuff now that they yeah. didn't have right back then yeah. where it was like, no, you can only look in your sandbox. Yeah, It's like, um, but I'm a backup utility. Well, mm -hmm. you can't then. You can't do that there. And like, yeah, should Super Duper and Carbon Copy Cloner be in the Mac App Store? Uh, should they have been there from day one? Heck yeah. You know, having a, a full disk backup, that's a great Mac utility. No, sorry. It's not. We, we're not going to allow that because of security. Well, no, <laughs> that's a terrible, a terrible thing. And and the um and the pricing part, which I didn't mention, but but you put in our show document. I mean, that's the reason the bare bones. One of the big reasons bare bones said that they were out of it is that, you know, the difficulty with Apple's App Store model is the same one that we had already known about on iOS, which mm -hmm. is all these Mac developers, they do a milestone version. Traditionally, they do a milestone version, 3.0, and then you buy that. And then you get 3.1 and 3.1.1 and 3.1.5 and 3.2 and 3.3 and 3.5. And then they say, 4.0 is here. And if you, if you buy it new, it costs this much. But if you already have a license for 3.0, it costs this much. Yeah. And you can't do that on the Mac App Store. So, like, if you look at w what got bare bones back in the Mac App Store, if you buy BB Edit on the Mac App Store, it's a subscription. <laughs> you just mm. pay them annual an annual subscription. If you buy it from their website, you can just buy it, and then you get upgrade pricing for the next version. So, the the business model of a lot of these apps doesn't fit the the whole approach doesn't fit the way that the Mac App Store is built because 
because the Mac App Store is built on the iOS App Store, which is built on the iTunes Store, which was a model to sell you um, songs and albums. And it still is, kind of. This episode is brought to you by our friends over at HelloFresh. With HelloFresh, you get fresh pre-measured ingredients and mouth-watering seasonal recipes delivered right to your door. HelloFresh lets you skip those trips to the grocery store and makes home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. And this is why it's America's number one meal kit. HelloFresh cuts out stressful meal planning, which is one of the worst things, so you can enjoy cooking and getting dinner on the table in about 30 minutes or less. Eating healthier has never been easier with their low-cal, carb-smart, vegetarian, and pescatarian options that you can choose from every week. And no matter what you choose, every single recipe is packed with fresh produce sourced directly from farmers. And HelloFresh's Easy Eats as an offering of tons of quick and easy meal solutions like oven ready and 10 to 20 minute meals perfect for your busy schedule. There is so much choice at HelloFresh um, and we were looking over it last week because we do we've been I have been a HelloFresh customer I think maybe 6 or 7 years now. Um, and it's been a great thing to expand my palate. I've been learning uh, to cook so much stuff at home. And there are so many recipes now. You know, we get like we get Hello Thrush a couple of times a week, three times a week. And on the off days, there's now just things I know how to cook because I learned cooking them from Hello Fresh. So like this week, we had a creamy mushroom pasta, refried beans and halloumi tacos, which were fantastic. And that's something I'm going to remake because I really loved it. And the instructions were easy and it's nicely laid out. HelloFresh continues to improve my ability to cook, expanding my horizons as well, which is fantastic right now because we're in lockdown. We can't go to restaurants. We can't very easily try new food. We would otherwise be missing out on trying new stuff. HelloFresh helps me continue to do that. Go to HelloFresh.com slash Upgrade10 and use the code Upgrade10 and you'll get 10 free meals, including free shipping. Try HelloFresh today, America's number one meal kit. Go to HelloFresh.com slash Upgrade10 and use the code Upgrade10, that's Upgrade10, for 10 free meals, including free shipping. Our thanks to HelloFresh for their support of this show and Relay FM. This is the one we use. It's really good. It's great, right? That's my, that's my, that's my promotion. Lots of selection. Mm-hmm. You can always find things you want if you're a picky eater. That's it's, yeah. It is wild. Like just over the last, say, like five years or whatever. You know, you, we maybe have like six or seven meals to choose from. It's not like twenty five, thirty meals or something it's, to choose from. It's, it's wild. Yeah. It really yep. is great. Mm-hmm. All right, so I got a bunch more product rumors for you, Jason. There was, seems oh to have just been an explosion over the last week, and there's just so many things. Uh, we'll go through them. We'll stop and talk about any that interest us along the way. Uh, but it's just uh, I like doing these earlier in the year, so it sets up kind of where we're looking at uh, aiming at over the next twelve months. So Digitimes is reporting that Apple is about to enter the quote second phase of development on AR glasses. Second phase testing takes a couple of months, then there's third phase, then there's about six to nine months of engineering validation. So there's about a year at least before they would be happy to even think about a product. Um, Apparently, both weight and battery life are being focused on most right now. Uh, But it is worth noting that these are AR glasses, while many rumors have suggested that there would be an AR headset announced before glasses. So all of this is to say, if these supply chain rumors are true, Something's happening, and 
you know, the idea that we will hear about something in 2021, which I think is what Mark Gurman originally predicted, like a headset in 2021 with glasses in maybe 2022, 2023, it's feeling more and more likely all the time uh, because unlike the Apple car rumors, which at some point we will get to, it's not today, uh, the timeline on these things seems much closer to where we are now and where it is in the process feels a little bit more real. Yeah, I'm going to, um, given the, the Ming-Chi Kuo uh, sa- saying that in that they would ship something in 2021, I'm just going to throw out there again what I mentioned, I think, in the Upgradies episode, which is, what if the headset is a developer kit? Yeah. And then there are glasses that will come later, but that if you want to like do a mixed reality AR kind of thing, you know, what if there's a headset? I have a hard time seeing Apple sell a headset as a consumer product, although it's possible. Like I bought a, an Oculus Quest 2, so sure. But um, I could definitely see it as a as a developer pitch device that they then, you know, follow up with a, a device that actually is consumer friendly that goes down the road. But something is happening makes with AR. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense because like, what would Apple's pitch for a headset be? Like, sit in front of your computer with this on your face and look at your computer? Like, it seems it seems weird because I can't really imagine gaming being the thing unless they're hoping a lot of iOS developers will move to some VR gaming or AR gaming platform that they've created. Cause I, but I don't really imagine how it would translate over unless they you know like the current ar games on your iphone working but it just doesn't feel like a compelling product like this is a product that you know i think that they will probably try and pitch like they pitch the original apple watch right which is like this product does everything right which is not the pitch for the apple watch now but i can imagine maybe something like glasses you wear on your face being able to being able to provide that experience more seamlessly than the original apple watch like you know like the 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 the, uh you know this the apple watch is also the key for your hotel room right like that was the kind of stuff they were originally promoting and they don't really focus on that anymore but maybe this is that kind of product and a headset isn't that kind of product but ar glasses more so yeah, I I do wonder um, what this was the clockwise question last week. <laughs> One of them was uh, was what's the killer app for Apple's AR glasses, and that's why I keep talking about developer kit because mm-hmm. I feel like Apple probably has some ideas of things that are extensions of Apple's existing structure, whether it's fitness or maps or whatever. But I don't know if you're Apple and you're going into this space, you've been trying to prime the pump with. AR kit and all sorts of iPhone and iPad things. And I I think one way to discover what the killer app is would be to lean on the developers to, because Apple's developers have a history of embracing new platforms and coming up with good ideas. So if you can open it up to the developers so that when you launch a consumer product, you've got a whole bunch of apps ready to go. If you think back to like the iPad launch when mm. there were so many iPad apps ready to go on day one, um, it might be a strategy that they would take on to do something yeah. that's not quite a product. Like just like HoloLens is not quite a product, right? And use that and get that out there, but not, you know, by by phrasing it as a developer 
something, it's not a consumer product. They're not mm-hmm. trying to convince consumers yet. This is this is uh, just a run up. It's version zero, right? And then they go to go to version one. I, I it's just a, an idea. Um, they could, you know, like I've I, I've said about that that Oculus Quest. Like Apple could make a VR headset that did gaming and some other stuff easily if it wanted to it's got all the technology to do it it's just like seems like a weird product for apple to do so yeah. I, I i keep thinking that the ar stuff is better phones pretty much right the, it, the, it is it's so. it's it's an iphone that you wear on your head right yeah. that's what a that's yeah. what it would be and that's what the oculus quest is is it's an android phone that you wear on your head and play games on so mm-hmm. they could totally do it but is I have a harder time seeing that as an Apple product than an augmented reality product mm-hmm. from them. And maybe that's just a lack of imagination on my part um, or some skepticism about what's available in the iPhone as a platform that would make you want to use, uh, you know, play iPhone games in, yeah. like like you play Oculus Quest games or something. I don't know. Mm. And, you know, like this does fit the idea of them pre-announcing a product in this way, right? Like we've, they've done this kind of stuff in the past when there isn't, an existing thing that Apple does that will be cannibalized. They do talk about these things sure. in advance. They did it with the Apple Watch. I've done it with the iPad, as you say, right? Like yeah. Apple TV, which is just 10 yep. years old now. They pre-announced that in the fall. Uh, mm-hmm. didn't even give it their final name. They called it ITV. Mm-hmm. And then they shipped it in the spring, or it, it, they shipped it in, in Macworld Expo in January. Yep. So they, you, when you're not cannibalizing existing products, you can pre-announce all you like. Mm-hmm. Or or do developer kits like the Intel and uh, Apple Silicon developer kits that existed that were pre you know those products existing, they made special hardware and got yeah. the developers really excited. So there's the lots of ways they could do it. Is if they did create that hardware, they're announcing a product that they're doing right. Like you can sure. like, hey, we've created this AR for headset. Sure. Don't worry about what it's for. <laughs> Just make apps for it. <laughs> right, but I I don't think that would stop them from saying you know we've told you a lot about the yeah. importance of augmented reality and we're serious about it and in 2022 we're going to ship an augmented reality headset but we want you developers to get started today and everybody's yeah, like course. oh my god Apple the thing we already have been talking about for two years mm-hmm. that is Apple working on AR they've confirmed the thing we already knew uh, for a year from now like I don't know I I think Apple's game plan has changed enough that they recognize that they could do something like that and it, it literally wouldn't make any difference. Uh, Michael Takara had this vast selection of uh, rumors and supply chain info. The first is that an iPad mini refresh is in the works. So this is half, I think, of what a lot of people wanted. Um, So this is a big change to the iPad mini, but bringing it more akin to the most recent iPad of last year, not the iPad Air. So Shrinking the bezels down on the sides, resulting in an 8.4-inch display, but still with bezels on the top and bottom. So there's still going to be right. a home button, still going to be a lightning port, um, and looking at a March kind of time frame for a release. So interesting, the iPad mini is still around, but kind of making really like classes of iPads now. Really, you know, like if they do this, yes. you've got the iPad and the iPad mini, and they look like older devices and then you have ipad air and the ipad pro as these more uh they have their own design language and you can see how obviously uh, a year or two hence two years maybe then the ipad and the ipad mini get the touch id button 
or something and they get a little bit smaller yeah. but like they're always going to be behind because they're mm-hmm. the low-end models yeah makes sense makes sense to me fans of the ipad mini probably yeah i don't know happy that it still exists and that it's getting an update sad that it's not getting like face id or something but yeah, you know and like it, it is the edge low yeah screen would be beautiful but this is but something it, this is looking for a march time frame uh Makotakara is also reporting a ninth generation ipad so the brother of the ipad mini now what's going to happen here is some dimension changes it's going to basically look exactly the same but it's going to get thinner it's currently 7.5 millimeters it will go down to 6.3 millimeters this is still not as thin as the current ipad pro um, it will get lighter from 490 grams to 460 grams. But the biggest thing is this will also apparently bring a price drop. Now, this is the part that I'm less convinced over, right? Because pricing is not set in the supply chain, if that's where this information is coming from. But we don't know where it's right. coming from. But this would apparently drop the price from $329 to $299. A sub $300 iPad is a yep. cool thing to have can see why they'd want to do that right that's obviously one of the goals of the of the ipad the you know just no name ipad is to have it be have it be relatively cheap compared to the rest of the line and get people to buy it uh at that entry it's the entry ipad Mm -hmm. and also you could use it for education and getting the price down for education is also good i mean i don't know like maybe get to closer to like 250 260 in education could be That'd be wild. All right. And then, so that's March. And then also in March, so I think we're looking at an event in March, Jason, that we can kind of put our eyes to. New iPad Pros. Or Pro. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So there is apparently going to be new iPad Pros, but they're going to be, it seems like they're going to be different. So the 12.9 inch iPad Pro is going to get half a millimeter thicker. The 11 inch iPad Pro is going to be the same thickness. So I guess what we're looking at here is the larger iPad Pro getting some kind of new display technology, and we're expecting that to be mini-LED. But the 11-inch, maybe not so much. And Mm. we've seen this in the past, right? The bigger iPad Pro getting, or at least iPad Pros being on different um, kind of release cycles for technology, and it looks like that might be what's happening here. Right. Well, the remember the larger iPad Pro came out first, and then the the smaller iPad Pro came out later with some features that weren't in the larger, but the larger mm-hmm. had features that weren't in the smaller, and then they synced them up. So this would be an interesting thing if a few years later on they decide to make, you know, are they going to call it the iPad Pro Max? Oh God, I hope not. The Am rumors I... don't seem to suggest that there will be well, multiple twelve point nines, but there could be. Well, I'm just saying if the 11 is the iPad Pro and the 12 oh, is the uh, Pro Max, I, maybe, mm, maybe thumbs down. I don't want to own a Pro Max. Um, Mini LED is this technology that's supposed to dramatically improve the uh, control of the backlighting on the display, so that you could probably they could probably call it an HDR display, which they can't now. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Interesting idea to bifurcate the line like that. I, I think that's been a quest, an open question, especially when the um, the iPad Air was updated. It's like, okay, how is the iPad Pro different? And how are the two models different? Are they different other than in size? Yeah, it, I would find it a shame if they do uh, rev these out of sync again. Because uh, uh, I, I, at the moment, am using the 11-inch mostly. 
like that's the iPad Pro that I'm using most of the time is the 11 inch. Right. Because and I also yeah I also think it is the best one. So I think it would be a shame to not rev them at the same time. Uh, there have been many other rumors uh, citing like larger, uh, sorry, like better processors, all that kind of stuff. Um, but this thickness uh, rumor would seem to suggest something's going on. Um, I can't, I don't really imagine a scenario where they have to make one of them thicker and one of them can stay the same, but they both get the same technology. That would be weird to me. So it seems like that there is going to be some kind of split. Weird. Uh, a redesign of the AirPods Pro case for a second generation model is apparently coming. And also a second generation of iPhone SE, both due for April. No more real detail shared than that. I wonder what it means, redesign of the AirPod Pro case for a second generation model. Does that mean that they're going to redesign the case now for the first generation model so it will also fit the second generation model? Does it mean that they're redesigning the case and there will be a second generation model, but they don't know what the second generation model is, only that they're redesigning the case? I don't know. So I have my theory. All right, so the case is getting... Uh, same thickness, but it's getting a little um, taller and wider. I think it's uh, MagSafe, so it fits on MagSafe, like and connects. Ah, uh, because you so, can lay one on a, you can yeah. lay the AirPods Pro case on a MagSafe now, and it works, mm-hmm. but it doesn't connect. So I'm wondering if it's that they're making the surface area like bigger. Which okay, is weird. Would they? Uh, would all right. I I think it's well they did with the AirPods original they did update the case but and they updated the model later and Mm -hmm. it was the same shape Mm -hmm. so that you can have the chi charging case with the first ones or the second ones so i guess they could do something like that no idea but i have no real idea that's you know uh the last thing the iphone 13 yes iphone rumors uh is to feature a narrower (sighs) notch but the phones will get 0.26 millimeters thicker We have a slightly (laughs) thicker camera bump, but it said that the design of the camera bump is going to change. So no longer having those tiers, it will just be uh, covered, the entire camera unit covered in one piece of sapphire glass. Interesting. So the idea there is you'll just have a a presumably like square camera bump instead of what we have now, which is a bump with little bumps inside it. Yeah. And uh, right. that that set of rumors also predicted what you were saying. I think it was maybe last week or the week before that the iPhone 13 Pro is likely to get the sensor shift. Yeah, there you go. So that might uh, be part of the reason for thickness changes as well with the phones. It's going to be a busy year again. I think. I think so. I, I think we're all, we're going to spend the year waiting to see what where the signs of the sort of reduced work because of COVID have hit Apple's plans. But it's going to be hard to see them. They seem to, you know, possibly because they they work so far out in advance that mm-hmm. they're able to disguise that and ride it out a little bit better. But you can spread stuff, maybe, right? Like we know the Mac is going to have a very interesting year, but the iPad Pro is really do a proper update and then they don't leave the iphones laying there for a year that doesn't generally happen and so there you go now we're now we're at a busy year so do you think let's assume that we're i mean i i expect that even the uh the airpods and the iphone 
if they're for April, I expect that they might be getting like announced in March, kind of like all this stuff together potentially. Unless they maybe do some press releases in in April for those products. Do you think that they would do uh, uh, the Macs and the iPads together in March at an event? A Mac and iPad Pro event, iPad Pro especially, in March, but Macs and iPads in March. Like they've done Mac and iPad together before. That was the Brooklyn event. Yep. with Mac and iPad. So um, they could totally do that. I think it makes sense. Yeah. All right. This episode is also brought to you by Bombus. Bombus make the most comfortable socks in the history of feet. They've rethought every single detail of the socks that we wear to make them more comfortable. And these socks do way more than just comfort and coziness. They also help give back to the most vulnerable members of communities. Because for every pair of socks that you purchase, Bombas donates a pair to someone in need. And thanks to the generosity of Bombas's customers, they have donated over 40 million pairs of socks and counting through a nationwide network of more than 3,000 giving partners. And the impact is more powerful than ever to those experiencing homelessness. These socks represent the dignity of some clean clothes and that is a small comfort that is especially important to people right now now when you buy these socks you not only get that great feeling of knowing that you've helped someone out in the world you get fantastic socks for your feet i love my bombas socks i am a huge fan of their like ankle socks they are the most comfortable that i have ever used then it's but it's not just about comfort they also have great designs they have great partnerships as well and they have some really fun designs you can check out on their site they have loads of great selection i am a big big fan of their product and i know that you're going to be too. So give a pair when you buy a pair and get 20% off your first purchase at bombas.com slash upgrade. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash upgrade for 20% off your first purchase. One last time, B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash upgrade. Trust me, you are not going to regret this. Like They are super, super comfortable. Give yourself a little treat and go get them today. Our thanks to Bombas for their support of Upgrade and all of Relay FM. Yeah, socks! Woo! Jason loves socks. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about something that's super delicate right now. Oh, boy. With a lot of Great. ramifications, but it's important to technology, so we're going to discuss it. But I ask you to All bear right. with us as we try and get through this. Basic timeline. Last week, uh, President Trump and his cohorts arranged a protest on the day of uh, President-elect Biden's confirmation, which incited violence and anger. Trump's followers uh, stormed the U.S. Capitol building in what can best be described as an insurrection. Uh, Trump did not firmly condemn these actions and, in fact, chose to tell uh, these people that he loves them and they're special. Twitter and Facebook used this as a reason to suspend Trump from their platforms. Facebook then decided to permanently suspend him until at least after he leaves office. Then Twitter followed suit of a permanent suspension and said that he cannot be on the platform in any guise. After this, many assumed that he and his followers would leave Twitter to the Parler social network, and this was a thing that people were trying to drum up. Google and Apple removed Parler from their app stores due to the content on Parler and its lack of moderation or plan to change that. Then Amazon's AWS hosting service terminated their contract with Parler, rendering it useless, uh, and it's very likely now that Parler will not be able to recover from this within any reasonable time frame. And then today when we were recording, uh, some people were basically stripped a bunch of information and personal information out of Parler because of bad security practices. And services like Shopify terminated agreements for fundraising 
Reddit and Discord and others closed down forums of discussion amongst, against, uh, amongst sorry, the most extreme supporters of Donald Trump. So, kind of all of the yep. cards fell, yep. right? Um, mm-hmm. it, it took the attack on the Capitol to be the thing that would push at least one company uh, over the edge. And then once one company would could do it, then the rest can follow suit. You know, like I think this was maybe a thing that was always waiting. You know, like so, everyone was waiting for somebody to take the first step, uh, <laughs> yeah. and kind of between Twitter and Facebook, they were basically egging like egging each other on to the point that then all of these other companies kind of not just moved against Donald Trump specifically, but also the most extreme of uh, those and those who follow him. Um, so, I want to have a conversation about this because it's really big news for technology because yep. there are a lot of ramifications from this and like, I think there are a lot of questions about it, right? Like, just at a very basic level, is it okay to remove the President of the United States from social networks? Like, is that an okay thing to do? It's a difficult thing, for sure. I wouldn't want to have to make that decision. Well, right. I, I think I've been reading a lot of uh, Ben Thompson's writing about this. And, and what I appreciate about Ben writing about this is that he makes a point that I think doesn't get <laughs> in lots of dialogue does not get um, said enough, which is it's complicated and hard. Yeah. Yep. And for people who are like, oh, there's an easy answer here. I don't think there is an easy answer. And his argument is. And it, and this is so complex, but his argument is basically that in general, what you probably don't want is big companies um, controlling what people can see, because the more of that there is, the more control and power is invested in big companies, largely who answer to no one. Like what Facebook, his point, especially about Facebook is, Facebook is structured in such a way that Mark... Uh, Zuckerberg can do. I almost forgot his last name. Boy, what a world it would be if I could forget <laughs> could who he you was. Do that. <laughs> um, Mark, what's his name? <laughs> Mark Rutherford, <laughs> as I'm calling, like, going to call him from now on. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg, he could do whatever the hell he wants with yeah. Facebook. Yeah. Like, and no one can stop him, short of laws. No one can stop him. Yeah, he he really is one of the most powerful founders of a company. Because he's right. retained enough control of his company to yeah. be able he controls to make the stock. his own decisions. Yeah. Investors don't get to tell him what to do. He just mm-hmm. does whatever he wants, and they can't throw him out. And Ben's point is not that Trump is great, but that do you want uh, somebody who has nobody uh, who, can tell, who can tell them what to do, an unelected person, control discourse? Mm-hmm. Because there are lots of bad ways that could go. Um, and we, you could argue that the history of Facebook is a history of all the bad ways that it could go, in yep. fact. Um, and, the, and so it makes it really scary to talk about these companies uh, exerting this control because they are not democratic institutions. They are just profit-seeking private corporations. That said, I... Um, I've been a community moderator for a lot of years in a lot of different places, and I know for a fact that communities have to have rules, or they descend into madness. Yep. And um, almost like the real world. 
just yeah you <laughs> you, you need rules uh-huh. or it descends into madness and i'll put out there another thing which is you know who can't in the united states anyway you know who can't set the rules the government because the first amendment very specifically says that the government cannot regulate speech mm-hmm. now there are exceptions to this including things like inciting violence which is what happened last week yeah that that's not protected speech believe it or not but people seeking the government to it's like oh these big companies aren't democratic and we we must let you know the the people (laughs) decide it's like well no in the united states at least you can't do that like you can't have the government say what do a moderation policy like they, it's not constitutional to do that. So the problem I see here is largely that um, there are there is so much power invested in these uh, individual companies. Um, the beauty of it is there are other places on the internet you can do stuff. But I think you could argue when you look at what happened with Parler or Parlay or whatever it is that. Um, and I would say corporations should be able to decide who their customers are. Yes. And if somebody is radioactive, because not because they have a political view, but because they've advocated for the violent overthrow of the United States government and the invalidation of actual valid elections because they didn't like the result, that's a really good reason for a company to say, we're not interested in doing business with you. We don't want your service, which allows people to plan insurrections to be on our platform. Mm-hmm. That's bad for business bad for business, right? That is something that should be allowed. If you're worried about the power that Twitter or Facebook has, I would say the problem lies with allowing with the regulators allowing them to be so powerful. Um because that's that's what has gotten us where where we are is that we've allowed these giant companies to have so much power that um there aren't necessarily that many alternatives, although I suspect just like 4chan, Parlay, Parler will find someone somewhere a server in russia or something that allows them to get back online yeah but i mean i've seen a lot of of people who seem very smart say like even if like the 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 the, the kind of resources required to change a hosting platform on a moment's notice is not an easy thing to do so like it could take them a long time before they were able yeah. to come back if Ever, because they may run out of money during this period. And that's what happened with 4chan and and Mm -hmm. all of its, you know, successors is that they're like, you know, you squash them here and they end up popping up somewhere else, but it can take time. And it's like BitTorrent sites. It's the same thing, right? It's just like, well, they get squished here. Oh, look, they're back, but they have a slightly different domain name and a different host. And Well, now that host has shut them down and now they've moved to somewhere else. And that that's things that are kind of renegade things on the internet can find places to go, but... You know, and I I would say this as a larger thing too is the society a society's got to have its standards, and there is a place that you have to draw the line between political viewpoint and something that goes beyond that, something that is a view that is not considered valid in a polite, uh, legitimate society. And I mm. would say uh, advocating violence. I would say uh, racism, white supremacy. Those are on the list of things that that businesses should look at and be like, no, we don't want to be involved with those people at yeah. all. We're not yeah. interested. Uh, but but also inciting violence is a pretty simple one. And that was, I thought, the most interesting thing of the whole event last week of the tech part. I'm not going to talk about the rest of it right now, but of the tech part 
was the end of Twitter statement because they they banned uh, Trump for 12 hours and then said he can come back. But if we see any more behavior like this of inciting violence that we we considered inciting violence, we're going to turn off his account. And then they did. And what they said in their statement was. The, the tweets he sent out. Not could be interpreted, but we can see them being interpreted by people as a message to plan more violence. And whether he intended it that way or not, if you're Twitter and you're saying, I, the tweet that says, I'm not going to the inauguration, but you people, I love you and you people should keep up what you're doing, not only could be interpreted as it's okay to commit violence at the inauguration because I, your leader, will not be there, but that they were seeing on Twitter and elsewhere people absolutely taking it to mean that. Mm-hmm. And I have very little sympathy for the people who say, oh, woe is me. I no longer have a platform, whether it's the president of the United States or the junior senator from the state of Missouri, because your famous politicians, you got lots of ways to get your message out. Yeah. I think it's fascinating that Trump hasn't done more since getting kicked off Twitter to communicate to people. I think maybe that says something about the nature of how he used Twitter and how maybe like they got it exactly right, which is Twitter was a way for him to throw lob some bombs into the public discussion and send messages that his supporters could read how they wanted to. And, you know, going to a podium and giving a statement while the press yells questions at him is not something that he wants to do, but he can do it. He can get his message out in lots of different ways. Um, th- there are plenty of ways for him to get his message out. So I, I roll my eyes at the idea that you're suppressing uh, c- the communication from some of the most powerful people in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can get their message out if they want to. So uh, it, it's a difficult situation. It's a very complex yeah. situation. But I, I do think that if you want to talk about the big, and there's a lot of Republicans who are talking about like, oh, we got to change the, the, the laws about what, uh, what platforms are responsible for. Anybody who knows anything about platforms will tell you what will happen if, if you change the laws like that, which is the platforms will disappear mm-hmm. or they will be so moderated that nothing will get through. It won't become a parlor like free form where people can say anything, including uh, advocate for assassinations, because uh, they're not going to be able to withstand the legal scrutiny of that. So instead, you'll get less speech, not more speech. But that's not really what they care about. That, you know, that, that's not really what they care about. They just, no. they're, they're mad because a lot of politicians have made hay, stoking up fear and anger, a bunch of group of people, feeding them lies, making them believe things that are just not true and act on them because it benefits them politically, not thinking that the consequences might rain down on them. And what we saw last week is that uh, a violent mob <laughs> approached the Capitol and went inside, including a lot of those politicians who did that. It turns out that the mob was turned back on them. The mob, the, the monster that they created, the vampire that they invited in. So uh, there are a lot, of, a lot of politicians running for cover now because they stoked all of these, uh, these flames and uh, don't want to deal with the consequences. And then there are also, you know, like you were saying, like a lot of the complaints from people about thinking that, that these social networks either have kicked them off or will kick them off for something like this is they've made a business 
over the last few years of creating this type of anger and upset, and it's performed very well for them. And mm-hmm. I assume that they don't want to uh, think that they're going to be in a situation where they're not allowed to do that anymore. If I have one hope of, of what will come out of this, and I, I have more than that, but I'll throw this one out there, which is I would hope it might teach some politicians the lesson that lying to people and telling them that essentially uh, our democracy has died and the only response is going to be an armed uprising mm-hmm is not just something you say because it's politically expedient to feed your base. It's something that has direct ramifications. And yep. if what you're truly advocating is a the dissolution of democracy in the United States, then I guess you'd nailed it. But if that if you were just mealy mouthed, you know, lying about it in order to make your uh your uh throw some red meat to your constituents, you bear responsibility. Yep. I mean, you do either way, but that way you, you bear it as a, as a fraud. So, yeah. You didn't get away with it. Well, no. I mean, we've seen it now. That, that, mm. And that was the sea change in the last week, yeah. is that Trump has been saying he didn't lose the election and saying lies about how he won by a lot of votes for ages now. And everybody's just rolled their eyes because, let's be honest, he's been doing it for four years. The last election, which he won in the Electoral College... Even then, he lied about how many popular votes were uh, cast because he was embarrassed that Hillary Clinton beat him in the popular vote. So he just said, oh, those votes don't count. Those were illegal votes. Mm -hmm. So he's questioned the voting, Democratic voting in America for four years now, more than four years now. So this is not new. But people went along with it saying, well, this guy, yeah, he's a liar and an egomaniac, but he's our liar and egomaniac. So we're just going to we're just going to go along and he'll he'll go away. And and it all came to roost last week. All of those things, because he's been speaking to people and lying about this being some sort of uh, stolen election in order to basically make him himself feel better. But it's had the net result of energizing a whole cross-section of people, mm-hmm. including, you know, racists and conspiracy theorists and uh, and other kind of disaffected people who believe it's true. And, you know, honestly, it's sad because if you believe, let, let me put it this way. If I believed that the election had been stolen and that Trump had won, had not won you know, but he had gotten, let's say it, like he had gotten all of the places where he lost to be invalidated and declared himself the president when we all knew that it wasn't true. Would I be outraged? Would I would I say now is the time where we as people have to go into the streets and stand up because we can't allow this this travesty of democracy uh, to happen, this undemocratic thing that's going to destroy our country? You're damn right I would. Mm. The difference is not subtle, though, which is it didn't happen. It's not true. Every single court case, every single attempt to ask them to provide evidence, they don't have any. It's all sophistry. It's all lies. There is no evidence. The people who are angry are angry about lies. I would say that people who commit violence are responsible for their actions, but also the people who lied to them to make them angry are responsible for their actions. Yeah. So that is, and, and last week it all came home to roost. And last week, it was very hard for the social media companies to deny their participation, not only in the promulgation of those lies over the course of years, but in very specific planning 
of these people radicalized by their services planning violence and they should have should they draw have drawn the line sooner yeah yeah i think so but at least they drew the line finally <laughs> like yeah. and and i think honestly i think the biggest thing twitter and facebook are doing now is trying to make it harder for people to plan more attacks in the not not about not about looking back about looking forward that more attacks are being planned by these radical people and they need to deplatform the people who are coordinating or inspiring and planning those attacks the question about like should trump have been removed sooner is one that i've seen a lot and it's it's quite a complicated one really like cuz there are many arguments you could make for why you know he sh- should have been taken off of social media a long time ago but this also yeah. does feel like a really good time to have done it. So Ben Ben Thompson's argument that that he got a lot of pushback from, including from John Gruber on their podcast, is this idea of of dust in the light. It's the idea that when your public when your public officials say things, there's value in having them be out there because it allows it to be criticized, and you end up with people on Facebook and Twitter and places like that saying, you know, Trump said this and then people quote it and they say, this is a lie. This isn't true. They do it in newspaper websites. They do it on the services themselves. And, and that public officials should be given a little bit of leeway to say those things publicly um, and not suppressed by corporations, because in the end, what you really want is not the corporations making that decision, but the forgive me, marketplace of ideas to be able to say that's, he said this thing, it's dumb. Here's why. Right. Um, and I, I get that argument to the point, but I think the, I think the big problem with Donald Trump is he was being treated. The weight given to him was that he was the president of the United States, which does bear weight, but there wasn't enough weight being given to the fact that he's a troll (laughs) and a liar and was you and was using social media in a way that no previous senior government person has ever had he is because okay i'm going to insult donald trump a lot but let me give him a little a little credit here he knows exactly what he's doing he is a so a master social media troll i've kicked these people off of so many message boards in my years he is a master social media user and troll he absolutely is and that's the part that didn't get enough weight I think I I think that in the end, they're like, well, what do you want us to do? He's the president of the United States. It's like, yeah, but this president of the United States is not doing president things all the time. He's doing bad stuff using your network as an engine. But there's no easy answer here. Again, come back to it. I think there's no easy answer here. However, I will say uh, incitement to violence pretty starkly changes things. Mm -hmm. And private corporations should be able to always decide who gets to use their platforms, use their services. And if you have a problem with that, I would say look within yourself and, and say, what are you willing to give the government power to do? Because I suspect a lot of the conservatives who are very upset about Twitter and Facebook and Amazon aren't big fans of the idea that government can just take what any private corporation does and stop them from doing it. There was a, a a tweet that went out last week from a conservative politician who said, um, 
getting, you know, kicking them off of these services is like something that happens in China. I think it was Nikki Haley who said that. Yeah. And somebody else said, well, no, actually the government demanding that a private corporation send out the, the messages of the government's leaders is what happens in China. Yep. It's like this time, the, the, all of this stuff happening at this time is a good time for it to happen. Like, as he is in his final days, to stop him having a time afterwards. Yes. Yeah. Well, I, I think that that is another calculation here, right? Is it turns out that the real danger that they see is a president who's about to lose power increasingly encouraging violence and unrest for him to steal back his power. Yeah. And constitutionally, his power ends in nine days. And so there's definitely an idea of sort of like, we got to get through this part. And then also stopping him from being able to sow doubt in who has power after those nine days. Right? Yeah, I mean... You know, that's I'm sure what he wants to do is to continue to call himself the president. And honestly, if if it was just Donald Trump bleeding about how he it's the life is unfair and he didn't mm-hmm. lose, um, it would be okay. The problem is that the entire right wing media sphere has amplified. They're they're deathly terrified of going against him. Um, I saw one report that said that um, a reporter had talked to Republican members of Congress who had voted in Trump's favor on all of this election stuff and said, of course, it's not true, but I'm afraid that if I vote the other way, my family will be in danger. That's tyranny. Yeah. That's tyranny. And that's the difference here, right? Is him having his lie about him losing because he feels bad because he's a egomaniac and a narcissist um, is one thing, but it's the whole rest of it, which is convincing millions of people that there's been some sort of uh shenanigans and he really did win and not just win win by a lot just it didn't happen didn't happen and then having them react with violence and even even if it's not like overt violence also the place it leaves the united states where you've got millions and millions of people who believe that the government is illegitimate and what is that going to spawn in terms of future behavior. So, you know, yeah, it sucks. It's a bad situation. And I would say again, I think it does point out that uh, some of these tech companies do have too much power and don't answer to anybody. But in this case, they did do the right thing. You know, if we've learned anything about corporations over the years, and I've worked in a bunch and you worked at a bank, you know, this Mm -hmm. too. It's like, they don't, do stuff unless they really, really have to, unless they're really put on the spot. And guess what? Last week put a lot of corporations on the spot. And maybe it's good in the end that there was a little bit of a refresher about the difference between we support politicians from both parties in the U.S. to the people we won't support are the people who are lying to their their uh, their uh, constituents and advocating the abandonment of democratic norms, that those people are not part of the conversation yeah. anymore. There is another side to it, though, right, where, like, the events of maybe even the last, like, four days, this has been a very long week. Um, oh, wow. It's been the, a long year. Yeah, it's, it's not January 15th yet. <laughs> the events of the last few days, like, watching all of these companies, like, use this as their, like, excuse to act, 
right? You end up with this like the car, like the domino, like a domino effect, right? This company shuts this down. This company shuts this down. This one does. This one does. This one does. Like you could argue, AWS would not have shut Parler down if Google and Apple hadn't kicked it off the store, right? Right. That like there's a there's a domino effect. Right. We didn't even mention this. Like we 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 talk a lot. The people are like, oh, Apple. And Google, they're so bad and they've closed the door. Well, first off, there's the web. There's always the web. But mm-hmm. secondly, how many times have we talked about Apple having exacting standards and kicking apps off for no good reason, right? Mm-hmm. Well, you look at you look at Parler and you're like, how did they stay on so long? And I think the answer is they were trying to not be seen as being biased, even though Parler was probably in violation of a lot of its rules that would have kicked almost any other service off. They're like, yeah, yeah but if Apple would have done this on their own, right, it would have looked, it would have been covered very differently. And, yeah. you know, all of these tech companies are all trying to skirt around these antitrust lawsuits that come in their way. And so, like, they, they would have been, they would have seen it as politically difficult to do it, right? But this, this kind of like domino effect, I wonder if it makes like the situation worse in some ways, because to people that feel affronted, it's like all of a sudden they're all like clamping us down. Like now Biden's coming in. They're all like, now they're exacting their control over us. Right. Like, and I'm not saying that it is, it was the right, I mean, as I say, right, like a lot of this stuff should have been done a long time ago. It is the right thing for these companies to take this time as the time to make these changes because it really has gone too far now. Like it's been too far for a lot of time. Now it's like really too far. But there is this concern I can see of like, does this make some stuff worse in the short term? Well, and I think I think the way I would phrase what you just said is um, I think a lot of these hosts and services gave them latitude and said, OK, it's politics. We're going to let yeah. it go because it's politics. And I think well, what yeah. has happened and in we the last week. We don't want to control politics and all that. Yeah, I get it. That is super important is you got to draw, draw a line and say beyond this point, it's not politics anymore. Beyond this point, it's trying to conspire to commit violence to overthrow an election Mm -hmm. that's not politics anymore that that's not not acceptable that is you lost an election and now you're going to attack the people whose job it is to go on with government because you're unhappy with the results that is that is a line that i think a lot of people didn't want to draw or, and I guess I think there's cowardice here too, right? It's like, I just don't want the bad PR and I don't want them making speeches about me. And so I'm going to let this one go. And they let a lot, they let too much go. And now they have to redraw that line. It's just like, I saw, a, a, was it Teespring this morning, put out a press release saying, because they found out that the uh, anti-Semitic uh, pro-Holocaust t-shirt being worn by at least one person photographed in the riots was a Teespring shirt, I believe. Mm. And, uh, they they were very apologetic and like we've shut this person down and we've deleted all the things and we feel really bad and we do have a lot of moderation but stuff gets through and we're sorry and we're going to make donations and all of that. And that's probably true, but it's also probably true that they let a lot of stuff slide 
because oh, there's just so they much don't, like copyrighted right? stuff there. It's just yeah, right. Terrible. So they they just they don't want the they 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 don't they, they make money mm. and they let it slide until there's bad publicity and then they have to tighten it up. And there was a lot of that in the last week too. Make yep. no mistake, there was yep. a lot of we let this we let this stuff go. And I think it was the boiling frog a little bit. Like you could ratchet it up more and more, and everybody just kind of let it go because they knew that they were going to get screamed at for suppressing speech on their own platforms until and it took a violent mob trying to get into the succeeding to get into the capital of the United States during uh, the Congress trying to do their constitutional rights to verify a free and fair election for them to all realize oh yeah that's too much <sighs> yeah I don't really have anything else to say on this. I, well, uh, so what I would say is it'll be interesting to see where this goes from here. Yeah. Um, because you are in a place where a lot of different people's political takes are torn up and thrown into different places. So like I said, now you've got conservatives complaining about pu- that, uh, private companies uh, exercising their rights about what that happens on their platform by complaining that it's a violation of free speech, which of course the first amendment doesn't guarantee speech on private platforms, only that the government doesn't regulate it. So now you've got people who are theoretically sort of no government control over businesses, people saying, Oh, we got to stop Twitter and Facebook. Right. And then you've got Democrats who have taken a different tack to big tech, uh, who applaud these moves. And so I think in the going forward, all of us expect big tech under the Biden administration to get looked at for new regulation. The Democrats are going to control Congress. Uh, He's ultimately going to be able to uh, post, you know, uh, nominate people to the various commissions. What happens in the next four years and beyond in terms of what that big tech regulation looks like? Because I would argue it's a place where right now, it seems a lot of the old standard lines have been put in a blender. And I don't know what's going to come out of there because it would be very interesting as it's been the last few months to see senators and, and representatives advocating for governments to tell private companies what to do on the Republican side, because that's supposed to be their thing not to do that. But they want to do it in this instance. Uh, so I don't know where that's going to go in the long run. But I do hope that this gives a little more of a backbone. You know, we, we had this uh, Macworld had message boards for the whole, almost the whole time I was there. Um, and we had, Chris Breen was tweeting about this this weekend. We, cause some of the people involved in this remind us of the people we had to deal with back then. It's very much like, oh, that they're at the Capitol now. Okay. Um, and you learn that you have to have standards for your communities and you have to have rules and that people are going to break it and they're going to try to avoid your rules. And I think this last week has reminded a lot of these companies that have public platforms and that profit off of having platforms where the public can come in and do things that their line of what is acceptable and their methods of determining who's violating their rules is not in the right, they're not in the right place and that they are responsible for things that happen on their platforms. Mm. And let's just say it. If, there's a lot of responsibility to go around, but if Twitter, for example, or a Facebook group was responsible for coordination that led to, I was going to say the the murder of a member of Congress, but let's say the murder of a couple of police officers, 
does that social media platform that hosted the conversation bear responsibility morally for that conversation being allowed to happen? I'd say yes. I'd Ooh, say yes. That's difficult, man. And, and I think the solution is they need to look at their standards. Mm. They need to look at their standards. And I, they're not going to say, you're not going to stop everything. You're not going to stop everything. And I'm not saying they should be held responsible by government for it as much as that they need to look within themselves and say, we can't be a party to this level of planning, of violence. That that yeah. we need to, we, we gave them, I hope the lesson from the last week is we gave these people a little bit of, of slack and they took it and they pushed it and they went to very bad places. Um, however, the, uh, let me give you the converse now, which is none of these companies have proven that their uh, moderation policies can be consistent or effective in any way. So, <laughs> I mean, what will what will they do with that knowledge? Start getting into the conversation around end to end encryption, and then we're off to to the races, right? Like, they... yeah, it's different though. It's just as different as Trump not being able to tweet. Like creating end to end encrypted uh, message groups that that or messages that are uh secret that are doing bad things it is a realm for law enforcement but it's also not public anymore it's not public just like right so it's you know, easy clan to, to, clan to, meetings to aren't public either right. right which makes it less likely to spread okay, that makes it doesn't sense. mean it's not a problem it doesn't mean law enforcement doesn't have to be involved and and find informants and worm their way into those groups just as they do now but it does make it harder for it to just be out in the open for people to find and for it to be recommended to your grandma on right. her Facebook feed. Right, yeah, because you have to know or get invited by the person to join it. It's not like this is just spread out into your social graph because your friend liked it and retweeted it or reshared it, and now you can join it because you're a little bit annoyed too. And then you end up getting radicalized from seeing this group and everything that's in it shared to you all the time. You already have to have gone over a certain level to to walk into a closed door kind of thing, right? Like you, as you say, like it's I, I imagine probably very rare for somebody to to stumble their way into a clan meeting, right, and then sit down and <laughs> join in. I'm reminded of a uh, Buck O'Neill, the legendary um, Negro Leagues star. Uh, told the story about how he was a, he was a scout after his playing days for the Cubs, I want to say. And he was scouting a player. He was trying to find where a player was playing in this little town in the South. And they said they were out at the baseball diamond. And he, he got the directions to the wrong baseball diamond. And it was this baseball diamond that was down a country road. So they drive down the country road and they pull into the parking lot. And the baseball diamond was being used for a Klan rally. <laughs> And there, there were, so these two black guys drive their car into the parking lot <laughs> for the Klan rally. And one of the guys who's sort of at the, at the entrance of the parking lot was like, probably not what you're looking for. And they're like, <laughs> indeed, it's not. Thank you very much. And they drove the other way. So I'm just saying you could stumble into a Klan meeting, but probably not. But you're not Pro- going to take, take a seat. Probably not going to take a seat. Yeah. Probably not. All right. This episode is brought to you by ExpressVPN. How do you choose which internet service provider to use? The sad thing is, most people don't get a lot of choice because ISPs have controls in certain regions 
and you know what can be used, what you can sign up for. And this control could be used to take advantage of customers, you know, like in putting data caps in. Things that if you don't have uh, competition, you don't have to think about customer experience, that kind of stuff, right? But also your internet activity could be taken and sold to companies or advertisers. You could protect your devices with ExpressVPN because your ISPs can't see your internet activity. I use ExpressVPN myself for many reasons. It's a really great service. With ExpressVPN, it's super simple to, to connect and you can have all of your network data tunneled through a secure VPN server so that your ISP can't see any of your activity. You can also use it to change your location if you want to be able to consume different content that might be locked out for you. Uh, being here in Europe, sometimes there are articles that I can't read because a website is just like, you're in Europe? We don't want to deal with your data GDPR, laws. Yeah, we'll away. just turn you off. So I can say I can connect to ExpressVPN and say that I'm in America and read the article from just like an American newspaper about some kind of law or whatever. It's a very peculiar thing, but it's something I can use ExpressVPN for. Like, just think about how much of your life is on the internet. Every site you visit, video you watch, message you send could be tracked, and then that information could be used against you. You can use ExpressVPN, and I use ExpressVPN as a way to keep my internet activity to myself and away from people you don't want to have it. Just download the app, tap one button on your device and you're protected. And ExpressVPN does all of this without slowing your connection down. And it's why it's rated the number one VPN service by CNET, Wired, and many more. So stop handing over your personal data to ISPs and other companies who mine your activity and sell off your information. Protect yourself with the VPN that I trust by going to expressvpn.com slash upgrade. That's expressvpn.com slash upgrade to get three extra months for free. One last time, that is expressvpn.com slash upgrade right now to learn more. Our thanks to ExpressVPN for their support of this show and Relay FM. All right, let's do some hashtag ask upgrade questions to finish out today's episode of the show. DCATS asks a question that kind of goes back uh, to one of our opening topics today. Do you think that we'll see a shift towards properly universal apps across iOS and Mac now that this is becoming more of a possibility? Or do you think that developers will stick to multiple versions on multiple platforms? What do you think? I think that newer apps, yes, especially companies that or individuals that maybe grew up in from either age-wise or in their business through the iOS model, that they may just be like, this is a known entity for me. I know how to deal with Apple's platforms. I know how to deal with the App Store and all of the business stuff. I know. And also my app is a subscription app because... Uh, this is the easiest way maybe for me to make money on iOS. So I'll just have my Mac app be a universal app built with these same underlying technologies, put it through the App Store. It's a subscription anyway, easy peasy, right? I can imagine that. And I'm seeing that. I see that more and more now. Like you see applications uh, that are new and they're on every platform and they're using maybe Mac Catalyst or they're using Swift UI or a combination of all of them. And they have a subscription that underpins the whole thing. So they can be on all those platforms and it's and it's easy for them. I do not think this is going to push companies that have separate uh, iOS and Mac versions towards this model unless they've already decided that they want to go the subscription route. I don't think it's going to change a lot of behaviors. Yeah, I agree with everything you said there. 
I think uh, going forward, people are going to look at this and new apps will be more likely to be built this way. And uh, there are probably some developers who have a a Mac app that's kind of obligatory, but they really their focus is on iOS, where yeah. they're going to be able to over time drop the Mac app and just base their code base. They'll still have a Mac app, but now it'll be based on the iOS code base. I think that's absolutely going to start happening. Where why why should we develop two in the long run when we can develop one? I think there are some places where you're going to say. Um, Oh, we should we should also say you can actually keep them separate if you want to. You could develop uh, a Mac app based on iOS and just not connect it to the iOS app if your mm-hmm. business model doesn't you know doesn't work that way. So there are ways to do it that way if you if you really wanted to. But but yeah, I think in the long run this is going to be a more likely path. And then as we see Swift UI come along and all of that, like I think it's going to just continue happening. The end goal is that. Apple will have one software platform across all its devices, but um, it's going to be, you know, I think for maybe forever almost that the Mac is running all sorts of different kinds of apps, native Mac apps and Mac apps brought over with Catalyst and um, some iOS apps with, you know, uh, iPad flavoring and other stuff. I think that's just going to be how it is going forward and the stuff that's incredibly complex and based on AppKit, the original mac stuff is not gonna it's just gonna continue kicking around as it is until it until it can't anymore and that may never happen tuna asks when jason reviewed the upgraded 27 inch imac he recommended that if you had to have a new mac then it was a good buy now that you've had a chance to try uh, a chance to use the m1 max thoroughly would you still recommend this intel imac or should i wait I had a friend ask me this, not named Tuna, okay. uh, this week, because her iMac is uh, dying. And what I said was, can you wait? And she said, I might not be able to wait. I said, all right, well, uh, first off, I said, I'll look at your Mac if you want, bring it over and, and we'll decontaminate it. And then I'll look at it and I'll see if I can figure out if the dr- it's the drive or if we can just wipe it and it'll be better. Or what what is going on with this Mac? Is it something physically wrong with it? Or is it just that you've got a slow old drive that's dying? And, and um, But when she was saying, I don't think it's going to make it, I'm like, well, you could get an iMac, but you really shouldn't because we're in this transition now. And what I actually told her is, if you can't wait, I don't think you should buy an iMac. I think you should buy a monitor and a Mac Mini. And, you know, everybody knows their own use cases. But at this point, I don't think I would recommend anybody buying an iMac, an Intel iMac, unless they had absolute reason for having Intel features or um, they're deathly afraid of first-generation hardware which are fine. If you've got those issues, then fine. But for like a regular person, ah, I don't think I can do it. I don't think I can recommend it. Um, If I had to buy a replacement for my iMac today, because it it exploded, (laughs) I would get a monitor and a Mac mini. Or I would just attach my MacBook Air to it. But that's just a question. Do you want a laptop attached? Do you just want a desktop? But that's, that's what I would do. Yeah, I think you're right. I don't think it's a good there's a good reason to buy any Intel Mac right now for a because, regular consumer. Yeah, I mean I have an iMac Pro, but like she she's not gonna buy a high end iMac. She's gonna buy a, a mid range iMac. 
it's going to be so much slower than getting a, an M1 Mac Mini and, and a monitor. So much slower. So I can't, I just can't. So that's what I told her is don't buy an iMac and let me, so Tina, if you're listening, she's not listening. Uh, you can bring your iMac over. I can see if it's broken or not. Maybe it was. I mean, this person's called Tuna. So. Oh, maybe Tuna is Tina. Maybe. Oh man. Can you imagine? Well, Tina, if you're Tuna, why didn't you just text me? <laughs> and Tuna, if you're not Tina, you're you keeping the right great thing. company, yeah. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Doug asks, what do you use to track your list of what you want to watch, read, play, etc.? Um, I don't. I don't. You don't? You don't? I don't. What? Really? How do you keep track of all of the I've things? tried. I've tried all the apps to track TV, and I never yeah. stick with them. Books, generally... I either put them on my library queue list or my Amazon queue list, or I just buy them and send them to my Kindle. That's if somebody recommends a book to me, I will generally just buy it or, or check it out from the library. If you write, if you're a writer, (laughs) now you know how to get your numbers up. Just, just recommend your book to Jason. Jason Well, I got it. I'm I'm not gonna like a, a random writer saying buy my book. I'm not gonna buy their book. I'm sorry, but right, you, you but have I do, to yeah. as a random writer convince someone who's a friend of Jason's. Yes, that's exactly that's that's the that's, the, that's, the, that's the trick. That's the trick. I'm surprised I about this. I'm, I don't. Really I've tried. I've tried. I've tried, and I I'm at a point now where I'm like, wow, what are we gonna watch next on streaming? And I think, well, if I if I had been compiling a list, I would know. But the fact is, I've tried all of those things. None of them have worked for me. Mostly, I tried the ones that that are a lot of work, where you have to like log what episode you've watched. Uh, it's too much work. I I, I just I, I get behind, and then it's like, oh, you have nineteen episodes of this show to watch. I watch them all. Yeah, I've had that and problem and I've tried the too. I've tried the make a note in Apple Notes with a list of shows you want to yep. watch, and then I never go back there, and I find it like weeks later, and I'm like, oh, right, here are all these old shows. <laughs> so. I don't know. I, I have yet to do it. The right way to do it is to use an interface for it. But as we know, and, and I will, I will add things as favorites or to my list in various streaming service apps. Mm. The problem is that they're not unified because on Apple TV, Netflix stuff doesn't show up. I have done that more often now with like Apple TV stuff and other stuff where I can see it in the Apple TV interface. And I do add things to my list on Netflix and they show up there. And that's a reminder to watch them. Like we were watching Taskmaster and realized that one of the comedians had a Netflix special and added that to the list. And then it was like, you know, three weeks later, we're like, oh yeah, there's the comedian from Taskmaster. Let's watch her Netflix special. So that, that will happen too. So I guess that's, that's my answer really is that I will favorite things that are recommended to me in the Apple TV interface and maybe they'll float back up. That's it. Me and Adina have a shared Apple note where we put things in but realistically most of the time we don't look at that note when we want something new um because for me i am very like probably annoying when it comes to to like new tv shows and movies because i really feel like i have to be in a mood for something like whether i want like comedy or drama or whatever and i tend to most of the time and especially over the last year veer lighter on my entertainment 
choices are like just nice things, simple things, things that don't have a lot of stakes to them. And so having that list isn't necessarily useful because it's a list of just everything and I don't necessarily know what I'm feeling. So for me, when it comes to content, really it's like, what do the streaming services recommend to me knowing my habits? And maybe that's something that I want to watch, you know? It's like we just started watching... uh, I think it's called Pretend It's a City on Netflix, mm-hmm. um, which I'm not surprised was uh, was recommended to me because I've, I've watched probably everything uh, that Martin Scorsese has been involved in uh, <laughs> on Netflix. And this is like a series that he uh, directed, which is Fran Leibowitz, who I was only like, I'm not super familiar with, but was somebody that I knew of. She was on David Letterman's old late night show a lot back when, you know, he was on 1230 at night. I figured you would know because I I kind of looked her up. I did some research about Fran on Wikipedia afterwards and saw that she'd been on a lot of uh, Letterman episodes. Yeah, back when that was a second tier talk show, they would have um, authors on, which, you know, talk shows don't have authors on much but they would and you know she's in new york so i think she's probably also available but yeah i remember friendly woods from that from the old letterman show so that's great that's it's good, hilarious good, by the way that's a good recommendation it's it's very i, I wish i wish maybe we should maybe that should be a new thing that we do sometimes in upstream is uh mention things that we've seen that we've liked because people are always probably looking for recommendations idea. yeah that's probably a good idea um and joel asks I'm setting up an old television in the garage. I mean, I assume this is just as like kind of like a den situation. I, 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 Joel didn't really expound on that. I assume it's probably not for like the car to watch TV or whatever. Um, and Joel said, should I buy a Roku stick now that comes with AirPlay 2 and HomeKit and wait for a new Apple TV or just spend the money on the current Apple TV? Joel, I have a great answer for you because I was setting up a TV in my bedroom because we, I moved, I have an Amazon fire stick and my daughter came home for about a month, mm-hmm. just left. And, uh, she wanted to watch stuff in, in her bedroom where we put a TV for my son to play video games when she's not here. But then she comes home and is like, isn't it great that you put a TV in my room? I'm like, yeah, okay. So I got her, I had an Amazon fire stick on my TV. So I plugged it into that TV. And then I thought, well, what I want is something that does airplay. <laughs> I should just get a Roku, a little Roku box and attach that to my TV in the bedroom. And so I did. So Joel, that's my answer is don't wait for a new Apple TV. Buy one of these $30 Roku boxes that does airplay and HomeKit and also has all of the apps that Roku has and just stick that on there because that's the cheapest solution. It'll get you almost everything you want. And unless there's a very, very specific Apple TV only feature that you need for this old TV in the garage, I wouldn't bother. I think the Roku is a very good deal and it's a better deal than the Amazon Fire Stick mostly because of the support for AirPlay. Um, that The AirPlay thing made a difference for me. That's what always frustrates me when I encounter a Fire TV is that, or a Fire, fire TV Stick is you can't AirPlay to it. but the Roku stuff you can airplay to. I've got a, I've got a Roku TV in our living room and it also has airplay and it's great. So that's what I would recommend. And then, yeah. you know, go into the settings and turn off all of their like ad options. <laughs> I would recommend also, but I think unless you're, you know, 
unless you're really worried about Roku or or you're really committed to something on the Apple TV, I would just buy a Roku box for a for a, a crappy garage TV to get all the features you want. Just do it. That's the way to go. Seems like a good deal right now, especially because it's kind of unknown what a new Apple TV could realistically be that would make it that much better than this anyway. Um, because the content, it's all about the content ultimately. And all of the content that you can get on an Apple TV, you can get on a Roku uh, TV. And it has all the additional functionality you want, like AirPlay, HomeKit. So go for that. For cheap. If you would like to send in a question to help us uh, close out the show, you've got something you want to know, uh, something you want to hear us expound on, maybe a topic that you would like to hear us discuss, the best way to get it to us is to tweet with the hashtag AskUpgrade or use question mark AskUpgrade in the RelayFM members Discord. If you would like to get access to the RelayFM members Discord and get a special feed of Upgrade that includes additional content and no ads, go to getupgradeplus.com and you can sign up for our monthly annual plan there and you get additional content with Upgrade Plus. That is getupgradeplus.com I would like to thank everybody that does support us already. Thank you so much for helping us produce the show every week mm-hmm. and ExpressVPN, Bombus, and HelloFresh for their support of this episode too. If you'd like to find Jason online, you can go to sixcolors.com incomparable.com and jason hosts many shows here at relay fm as do i you can go to relay.fm shows not only to see the shows that we produce but we have shows from many talented individuals here at relay fm and i invite you to peruse them and pick one out at your leisure i i guarantee there is at least one more show for you in that list that you're not listening to already uh, Jason is at Jasonel, J-S-N-E-L-L, and I am at iMike, I-M-Y-K-E, and we'll be back next time. Until then, say goodbye, Jason Snell. Goodbye, Mike Hurley.